Is the market bottoming now? James Smith says no. James Smith is an investment advisor and a friend of mine for over 28 years. James and I work together and we've been talking market shop over the past 28 years. Please listen in to an insider's view between James and myself as we catch up and discuss the current state of the investment world. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Welcome to the Market Call Show, where we discuss what's happening in the markets and the impact on your investments. Tune in every Thursday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Market Call Show. We have James Smith with us here today. James is a really good friend of mine. I've known James for over 20 years. Uh, we used to work together at a brokerage firm. And I'll never forget when I first met him because he sat next to me and he was always so focused on his work. And uh, I really wanted to bring him on because we've talked a lot over the years and he's helped me with a lot of perspective. And I wanted to share some of his perspective with you. James, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. You know, um, I wanted to just kind of set the background if we can. Tell me a little bit about your early life, like, you know, your, you know, how you got into this business how you got into finance and you know, kind of the setup, you know, playing football and all of that. Just give us a little background about yourself. So I went to high school at Hinkley High School, graduated in 84 and got a, a full ride scholarship to the University of Colorado. And somewhere about second year or so, I decided I wanted to be in the business school. Um, met some really interesting, famous people there. And um, I'd say that I probably didn't decide until I was close to my senior year that I wanted to be in this business. And so I had an agent at the time, a sports agent, and his brother was a penny stock guy. And they sponsored me in order to get the test. So I actually paid for the test and got it on my own. Um, I had a job offer at Dean Witter at the time in Boulder. And I decided that I was going to play professional football, but I so I, I ventured that way for a couple more years till about 24, 25, and I parked my license in the interim. And then I think around, oh, early 90s, I decided that I needed to get a job and football was too painful and I was going as far as I was going to go. So I um, interviewed at Betcher and I wanna say about 1992 and they, didn't offer me the job. Um, there was a guy that was a booster at CU and I dated his assistant's roommate and she was telling me how I could get some interviews. Um, so I interviewed there, Merrill Lynch, a couple other places, didn't get the better job. Um, he made some calls and then about a year and a half later, 1994, I re-interviewed at Betcher and I got the job and that's when we met. So it's a little longer than 20 years. We were upstairs in the same building. Um, how, how much more do you want me to tell you? <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah. You know, you have a really good, uh, timeline there. 1994 was my recollection too, that we met, um, because that I had just gotten a job there and, um, and I, ch I, sh I changed offices cause I was at a different office because that was the office I can get the job in. You were in Lakewood. I was in Lakewood. I did not want to be there because I lived near t the tech center, which is where you were. And uh, the offices were nicer. It was closer to the clients that I wanted to talk with. 
So I had to pull a lot of strings to move to that office. And by luck and by chance, I sat next, sat next to you. I remember that. Yeah, we sat, we threw around a baseball and uh, talked shop a lot. And one day, one day you said something to me that kind of uh, has stuck. You said, you called me hitter. You said, hey, what's up, hitter? And I think that was just the thing you said to people. And now I call you Hitter Smith. I'm not the hitter anymore. You're the hitter. <laughs> so, so yeah, but I thought that's, I don't know why that stuck. But, and I don't yeah. know why I said, I don't think I called everybody that. I think uh, I got the nickname thing from college. Everyone had multiple nicknames. And I want to just kind of talk about your perspective about the markets and this unique environment because you and I have been advising clients, clients and managing money for a long time. And you've seen a lot of ups and downs. And what we're seeing right now as we've had a lot of conversations seems a lot different. Right. So are investors being too optimistic right now? Because you're hearing people say we're near bottom and stuff like that. Are, what is your general perspective on, on the level of optimism and whether or not you know, this cycle is, has more to go? To the downside, if you will. Well, typically, as far as I remember, there was a when I got in the business. I think '94 was considered the end of a recession, and I remember the market literally went nowhere for the entire year. '99, uh, 2000 area was a much bigger correction, um, and then '08, '09, and then kind of COVID, which was a flash correction. Uh, normally, they're not top to bottom in 60 days. And so I would say in general, people are being too optimistic only because we haven't seen sort of the panic sell at the bottom. Um, I panicked in the past. I'm not going to panic now because I think I'm better positioned than I was before. Mm. And I think until, you know, inflation, people talk about it, you know, we've seen peak inflation or it's not that bad. You know, inflation is supply and demand and we have too little supply for the demand and the only way to fix it is to increase the supply. But as we talked, you can't just wave a wand and then the supply magically appears. So, you know, crops uh, and fertilizer that's related to natural gas, even if you turned it on tomorrow, how much of a crop did you miss th this year before next year? So I think it, it, A, we haven't had um, sort of the panic sell off where everyone wants to get out and B, uh, we have a supply problem. And until that gets fixed, I'm not sure this gets fixed. And then interestingly, I think we talked about this too. Typically, the economy is contracting. I think GDP comes out tomorrow. I think it'll contract again. And you have inflation. You wouldn't be normally raising rates. So this is a different time. And as we've discussed, um, history doesn't really repeat but it rhymes and we've never you and i've never really been in a bad inflationary environment like this so i think there's probably more to come if you worry about your investments need to make complex financial decisions or pay unnecessary taxes a lack of proper financial planning and investing may already be costing you a great deal when you are ready to turn your peace of wealth into peace of mind Go to WealthNetInvest.com and click on the schedule a call button to talk to us and get a free consultation today. Yeah, that's really true. We've been in the business for quite a while, but the last time we had inflation that was bad was 
just before our time. And, and I remember talking to people that were, had been working in this industry a long time when I first got in, and they were telling us, hey, you have no idea what it's like when inflation gets ugly. I don't know if you had that experience or not. And, um, and of course, because I remembered that, I've studied it a lot to see what the markets have done. And, uh, and I think, like you said, it rhymes. But the reason why I asked you why, whether or not you thought people were too optimistic is that I was just, you know, just watching the news. We have, first of all, the politicians are coming out and telling us, hey, let's redefine what a recession means. That's new. Right. I feel like there's a spin. But if you just look at the data, a lot of companies are slashing their profits, Walmart, Target. We had, uh, we're seeing increasing layoffs. We can name a bunch of companies that are laying off. Um, and yet Wall Street earnings estimates are still expecting like an up 15% uh, earnings growth, but normally that's not what happens in this kind of environment. And then there's expectations for like 9% increases in the following year. So I guess, are you thinking that the inflation itself is the biggest problem or do you feel like we're just due for a norm is this a normal cyclical type of correction or is this something that maybe we could see more of a downside kind of like an 0809 kind of a thing i'd say it's uh atypical and we'll probably see more um you talked about i mean the guy that got me in the business was telling me that this is a secular bear market he got in the business in 80 ish and one of the things he talked about was the fact that when earnings came out at that period of time, what the analysts used to do is discount the earnings by 10%. So if you came out with $2 earnings, um, they would show it as 180 to reflect inflation. And we haven't done that yet. So mm. you're right, you know, um, Walmart and some of the box retailers are uh, having inventory stack up, having the right thing, mark things down. People are maybe spending the same amount of money, but buying less. And they're not also buying the basics versus before. So I think um, inflation's much bigger and it hasn't been re you know, added into the forecast in the future forecast. I think Microsoft came out yesterday with a little bit of a downward future forecast. I think we're going to see more of that. So if that's true, then that means PEs are too high and we'll probably have to readjust those, which means the market comes down. Yeah. And we have other signals that look kind of interesting that would point that direction. Like if you look at the junk bonds, junk bond spreads, you know, the, 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 the high yield bonds relative to the high grade bonds, those typically, uh, that spread widens a lot uh, to forecast a recession is pretty good indicator. That number has expanded a lot. It's not at the peaks that we saw uh, and I was going to ask you your thoughts about bonds, corporate bonds in particular, because I've noticed that the peak in the that that junk bond spread is is a much higher in other recessions, and we haven't hit that level yet. Do you think that maybe corporate bonds are still vulnerable here, especially if rates rates go up? Yeah, I think when you have to refinance your debt, lots of companies have to roll and refinance all of the time. At a higher rate, it's going to be problematic. We inevitably see uh, corporate bankruptcies that we weren't anticipating as rates go up. And I saw the chart that you're talking about with corporate bond spreads. They've been higher in the past. Um, but like I said, history doesn't necessarily repeat. It just rhymes. And the idea that, you know, we're getting to these 
levels where, like I said, these companies have to roll and get new debt, it could be problematic and we're going to see some other probably bankruptcies. I think the on an unrelated topic, when I saw the crypto, there was a couple crypto bankruptcies in the last 30, 60 days, and those are just symbolic. They're kind of the canary in the coal mine and there'll be more. I mean, when someone, I, I think the number was 600 million of bankruptcy on some crypto. What happens to that money? It doesn't just disappear. It has an impact somewhere. Mm. So it's probably going to roll over and we're going to see more of that in the corporate sector. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And then one last point, you know, I think if I'm correct, I thought during COVID, the Fed bought a lot of the corporate debt and it's on their balance sheet now. Uh, we talked briefly about 08, 09, 900 billion on the Fed balance sheet. And now it's nine trillion. So I think there's some corporate debt on there. I wanted to share this little chart because it kind of illustrates what we're seeing. What you could see some of the big countries here, the United States, China, Eurozone, Japan, Germany, etc. And just looking at the real GDP quarter over quarter numbers here, you could see that we have negative growth, right? We've the United States was down 0 0.1, 0.4, uh, Japan down 0.1. You know, some major economies are slowing down for sure. But look at these inflation rates over here on the right, the red here. I mm -hmm. mean, 9%, 9%. The Eurozone's sitting at 8.6% inflation. But yet these interest rates are, look how low the interest rates are in this column here. This is the kind of thing that really is, is a little bit frightening to me because I know they're so far behind the curve. And if this inflation doesn't get under control, that means that we have not, we're not discounting this, this inflation rate rise. But I think what's throwing people off, and this is the thing that we're hearing people in the current administration say, hey, look, the unemployment rate is low. Like, according to the official numbers, unemployment's 3.6% you know, in the United States. And so it's like, oh, hey, we can't be in a recession if if the unemployment rate's 3.6%. What are your thoughts about that? I mean, in terms of, like, does that really matter? Or is this number likely to go up? Or is the number even being distorted? And I know you're not an economist, but just your sense from your experience, what, what do you feel? Well, my experience is that uh, longer-term interest rates are more symbolic of the economy. And so I think you can actually have long-term rates go down or stay in this ballpark while they raise short-term rates. And both of those things can be true at the same time. If I remember right, in the 80s, you had 20% plus or minus on the federal funds rate, and you had 12 to 14% on the 30-year treasury. And also, I think Japan had really low interest rates for 20 years on the longer end. So I think you can get all of those things at the same time. As far as the unemployment and those numbers, I think they've been distorted, much like the CPI has to fit the narrative. I mean, we can make numbers say whatever we want them to say, but mm. um, if people aren't looking for a job and they're not counted the correct way, yeah, you can get the number to say what, what you want. It's interesting that if we have a 3.6% unemployment, uh, I was just in South Dakota visiting my son this past week, and literally every store, every shop had help wanted all shifts available sign. And one of them was a hamburger place, it looked like a ghost town. So I'm thinking not only can they not get people to work, um, the place is empty, probably from food prices. So I think you can get all of those things at the same time. 
and you can decide what they all mean. Uh, I just think that inflation is, is a big deal and the unemployment or the employment rate is not precise. Mm. It doesn't feel like it's precise. And, and I, I get this question a lot, and I don't know if you, you are too, but people will say, what is going on? Like, why do we have, like, nobody wants to work, but yet all these people say they need jobs. It's like, what's going on here? Is there, it, there's something different. And I, you know what, actually, I'll tell you what my perception was, and I want to get your feedback on this. So back when I was um, going to school in Texas, I was, went to University of Texas, I had a professor who was a, he was an MIT guy, he was a, uh, he, an economist for Exxon, and it was an aggregate economics class, like a junior level class. And he explained that we, when, you know, the whole cycle of what happened when we had inflation. And one of the things he said was that you're going to get these shortages and, the, and it's a self-reinforcing process where you'll get a shortage, which will lead to more shortages and, and which will lead to more inflation and reversing it is very difficult. And, and I think it feels like that's what's happening right now. And he said, one of the reasons why you'll know that, and he was a really funny guy. He said, one of the reasons why you'll know this is happening is that you, all the guys who are employing, all the people that are managers that are employing will say, I can't find anybody except the guy on the street that I don't want to hire. Right. I, um, so, and in that case, it's not that, that there wasn't workers. It was like there was disincentives to work. I mean, I'm wondering if that's part of the issue or because it is a little baffling for many. Well, whenever government pays people to not, not work there's a disincentive i remember i think it was the june employment numbers showed about 327,000 jobs created it was higher than expected but if you had drilled down i want to say um i can't think of the group who did that uh but they basically said that roughly 200,000 of the people that got a new job already had a job so that's telling on a couple fronts one 200,000 of them weren't new jobs and two, people have to take a second job to pay for $5 gas. So I'm not sure. And if that's true, um, I think it was Seeking Alpha where I saw that. If that's true, then, then unemployment's higher than they're telling us. Obviously, they have a narrative and they want to you know, keep it that, that way. They want people to believe there's a soft landing. So they, you, know, you talked about the news. I don't watch the news um, until way late in the day. I want to kind of figure out stuff on my own. And I read a lot, but I think the news is um, seduces people to believe things that may or may not be exact. Mm. So I think unemployment's higher than they're saying, and it's the reason why people can't, you know, hire as well as people being paid to stay home. Yeah, I agree with you. The news is a very dangerous thing to read. Um, I read the news for one reason, and that is to try to understand psychology. Right. To, to understand what people are thinking and then to compare that to what the data is is saying. So and I, that's the biggest problem I'm seeing is the, the disconnect between the kind of the factual stuff that we're looking at versus what we're hearing, we're seeing in the news. And, um, you know, we feel like there's such a big disconnect. And I don't think I've ever seen the disconnect this large before. Maybe it's happened before, but but I don't see that now. In fact, I just did a recorded a series I called Summer Shorts, which is about um, keeping, you know, worrying about your or dealing with your own personal economy and uh, how you how to get closer to the truth, finding the truth 
and how to focus on what is actually important because there's so much noise going on right now. And, and that was leads me to another question I had for you, which was really regarding, I guess the, what's happening with the midterm elections a little bit. Like, I, I don't want to get into politics too much, but I want to just see what your thoughts are about what is likely to happen. Will it even matter? And are there any strategies around that you are thinking about with regard to the midterm elections? Um, you know, I think I don't really look at it from a political vantage point, but what it, the tea leaves appear to say is that there'll be a shift in power, which is probably a good thing. The founders wanted things to move slowly. Uh, modern day politicians want to do things overnight. And mm -hmm. I think those are all problematic. You know, I just saw the semiconductor bill for 280 billion and I'm thinking um, that seemed like it was overnight, but well, we don't have the money. So, and then you get that from both sides. So I'm not sure that a shift in power would change these things totally but they'll at least slow things down. It's supposed to be gridlock. Um, but over the last decade or so, politicians have led us to believe that we need to act now. I'd prefer to let it move slowly because when it moves slowly, then you can have conversation and discussion and debate. When it moves quickly, it's quickly forgotten. And that's probably why we have $30 trillion in uh, debt and $100 trillion in unfunded liabilities because these things are just done quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So it sounds like it could be a relatively good thing then. I think based so. on what you just said. Yeah, okay. I mean, for the way our business is, it doesn't matter what the politics are. It matters if everything else is working. And if, you know, in a functioning society, you're not supposed to have conversations about politics, but we're not functioning. So that's why it's on TV every day. So at some point we'll get to a calming space where that's no longer the everyday topic. Mm. I hope you're right about that, that it doesn't turn into something more violent. I, I hope that's the case. But so, so it looks like we will have some kind of a shift. It could be good, but will it, but like, will that good be realized in the marketplace right away? Like, I guess the reason why I'm bringing that up is because like you hear some people say, Hey, we're at a bottom right now. And in the last month we've had a little bit of a bump up. Uh, but yet the data that we're seeing is saying that we're, we're just starting this decline uh, in terms of econ the economy. So I'm seeing like, like the, could this be just a bear market rally? But I'm wondering if that, if that, um, that particular midterm election thought process, you know, the general consensus is we'll have a big shift, um, that maybe it's, it's going to slow things down. But will the market actually recognize that right away? Or will it take time for that to work itself out? I think this is longer and drawn out. Um, I think most market tops to bottoms that we've experienced are a couple years. I think the top may have been November of last year. So we're not even a year in. And then if you add into the fact uh, that I've talked to people smarter and uh, longer in the business than me that say we're in a secular bear market, you might be talking about multi-year, uh, five to seven years to get out of this sort of thing. So. I don't think we're near the bottom. You, I think you were the one who said to me that the largest one day rallies occur in bear markets. Mm -hmm. So I'm not getting excited here. I think what's going to end up happening from an investment standpoint is, you know, back in the seventies and eighties, there used to be sort of a five pronged uh, investment allocation pro process. 
-hmm. It was stocks, bonds, cash, real estate, and gold. And we don't talk about it that way anymore. We talk about mid cap, large cap, small cap, international. And I think you had asked me earlier, <laughs> what can people do to win? I think getting your allocation a little bit closer to that than where we are with, you know, the colorful uh, large cap, mid cap, small cap is a, probably a better method at this point. So and, and use and use these rallies as a place to get more comfortable. Most people and probably I'm just guessing are closer to 100% invested. Most people own S&P 500 and then multiple ETFs that look exactly the same. Mm -hmm. You know, if you own eight different mutual funds, you know, you own 600 stocks in each mutual fund, you own 4800 stocks. I don't know of any model that says that you you're better off owning 4800 stocks. So I, I want to get back to si simple. Uh, let, let me say another thing is that when we got in the business, I remember there were basically three asset classes, stocks, bonds, cash. And then in the next 25 years, they created all of these other types of products. And many of them exploded along the way. And I think we've come full circle and we're back to where we were before, which gets to that allocation that I was talking to you about. And I think that's how people can do something protective and proactive at this time. Yeah, absolutely. And that that I, I you and I are totally in agreement on that they, we've we've kind of overcomplicated things and we've lost true diversification. But um, this actually leads me to this concept or thought about the house housing market, because some of the data coming in in the housing market, I think is, is related to this because you mentioned, you know, real estate, stocks, bonds, etc, commodities, gold. Uh, let's just talk a little bit for a little bit about the housing side. So I was wondering what your thoughts were because I was seeing like, okay, look, the mortgage applications have been plummeting, house prices are already off their highs. You know, if you talk to a real estate person, they'll tell you everything's good because supply is, is so tight, but yet we're seeing supply versus demand equation, that gap getting very large. Interest rates are likely to go higher. Um, you know, if you just run the math on a, on a payment, if, if rates go up to even the midpoint of where they normally go up, that would imply that house, housing prices would need to be like literally half of what they are right now. So um, the other thing I was, you know, looking at was that, wow, okay, if you look at the, the affordability, like the value of a home versus the income, normally it's around three, three to four. Now it's sitting like between six and eight, depending on how you measure it. That is another sign saying, hey, well, that doesn't make sense. Are we due for, for more home price declines or just steadiness? And how is that going to affect people? You know, because I think about the wealth effect. You know, when people people have already lost a lot of money in the markets, stock markets, they're also starting to lose money in their homes, and that means they're going to tighten up even more. Is that even in the equation here? Is, is I guess is what I'm saying, or asking, or or well, am I being too pessimistic? No, I think you know, I think we've been led to believe that buying a house should be at three percent. And I was talking to a buddy the other day. I think I got my first condo at seven and a half or eight. And what that does is it, it determines how much you can buy versus mm -hmm. when it's 3%. Because you have a lower payment, you can buy more. So I think there's some of that. I think this time, though, unlike 08, people were required to put 20% down. I remember when I, I recently bought in 2020. I don't know why I did it. Something struck me, and I got a steal of a bargain before the great inflation of housing prices. And um, But I, I, I got a 3% rate. And it was a house I could afford. Um, 
but I think when rates go up, people can afford less. So, and since there's a tight supply, so how do we get to a tight supply? You know, demand didn't just magically go up. The uh, population didn't just magically go up. But when you have companies like BlackRock and Goldman Sachs going in and buying developments in neighborhoods, they're um, artificially inflating the price of houses. So there were people that bought in an artificially inflated environment. So that part of the bubble that gets popped is going to affect, you know, people's balance sheet net worth. I'm not sure though, if you have put 20% in your house, which I think most people have to now, that you're gonna walk like you would have in 08 where you put down 5%. So we'll probably get a little mixture of both where real estate gets cheaper, but not necessarily a ton cheaper because of the supply demand thing. You have to live somewhere. Mm. Yeah, so it's not likely to be a huge, huge decline it sounds like. It's going to be um, a little bit also dependent on where's your economy. You know, in Denver, we didn't get really hit badly by um, 08. There were things that went down, sure, but it's not like some of the other cities, you know, where right. um, stuff got cut in half. But yeah, I remember we'll, like we'll in Arizona. Bit, but you're not, you're not going to sell your – I remember being in Las Vegas, actually, at the time, and I was playing at a golf course. I think it was Siena. And we, there was a kind of a cut through in the neighborhood, and it was literally – an entire ghost town city and there were houses for sale and people were buying them and but there weren't a lot of people i mean you probably had to yell on a bullhorn to, to get your neighbor down the street and then there were boarded up areas and i later came to find out that they um they graded down those neighborhoods but you can't just get rid of something and it doesn't come back and get you where does where did the money go for those houses that were supposed to be tied to the bank well, it's probably on the Fed's balance sheet now with the nine trillion. Exactly. So all of this comes to pass. The rubber hits the road, and asset prices will get correctly or repriced. Let's just say that. Right. Okay. So yeah. So so you, so I guess what I'm hearing you say is that maybe softer prices, but probably depending on where you are, it's not even. You know, like some areas will probably you know do a lot better than others, but in general, maybe just a slight repricing. Um, yeah, I, I tend to think that's probably true too. Um, I'm not quite sure yet though. I, I noticed that foreclosures expanded pretty dramatically too recently. I mean, it's just starting to increase and you don't hear anybody talking about that, the fact that foreclosures are increasing. Or the new repo, housing starts. Or car repossessions either. Or in the June small business survey where 30, maybe it was 60%, I don't want to misquote it, but there was a large number of small business owners that could pay all their bills except the rent. So all of those things aren't cooked in either. Exactly. So so I think a little reality check uh, it, it appears to be in order. Uh, we don't know for sure because markets can do strange things and economies can do strange things. But uh, it appears like, like, you know, I love what you said about how uh, use market rallies to help yourself get more comfortable, right. get more diversified, get more into those areas that make more sense. So let's let's move a little bit into that that kind of a discussion about you know practical personal advice. Um, I'd like to start off if we can with somebody who's like that high income professional person. You know, I know you have different types of clients, clients that are you know retired, not retired. Let's if we could just focus in on your kind of your executive type clients who are high income. They're not retired yet. They're saving a lot. Maybe they're doing fairly well. What are you seeing their concerns right now being, and what are the what's the type of advice that you 
have find you're finding yourself delivering to them right now? Well, I think their concerns now are a lot of those execs are tied to the company stock. If it was a high tech stock, uh, you've seen them come down. Most of the big name high techs are down 50% or more. So it's a negative when you work Silicon Valley or one of those types of companies that you have so much tied into it. And you don't always have latitude to do, you know, execute stock options or anything like that. And I say that their concern is that now, you know, I brought these, some of these things to their attention two years ago about one, having a concentrated stock position. There's nothing good about it. Yeah. Um, people have made a lot of money that way, but I've seen them go the other, the other way. And so, you know, that's, I think that the challenge for them is that sometimes they don't have the option to get out and then they didn't listen to you when they, when you made the suggestion and, and now it's kind of a hope that it'll rebound. Those would be the biggest concerns. You and I saw that when we first got in the business. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. We had a broker that was working there that was involved, had family members, I believe that was involved with the uh, Silicon Valley firms and, uh, People were, you know, just on fire about stocks and they got pummeled and then they just wished that, you know, they had sold. And some yeah. did. I mean, you had some secretaries that sold and made millions and then others that, uh, that, that basically lost a big chunk of it and then had to do a lot more to get to a point where they were financially secure. And I've, I've personally seen that with some clients that have had opportunities to be uh, financially secure and then basically have lost that. Uh, uh, and, and, or let's just put it this way. They didn't lose it, but it was just going to take a lot more effort now to recover. Um, so that's one thing with the high income. What else are you seeing other than the company stock? Um, you know, let's say they're not getting a lot of company stock, but they have pretty good income and they're, they're they've been saving a lot in their 401ks. What is your thought about like that mix of 401k savings versus non 401k savings. I mean, because all of our career, the financial planning industry said, back up the truck with your tax deferred assets, you know, and all of that, and then, and then start saving outside and things like that. What is your thought about the retirement industry and the retirement types of accounts and how much you should emphasize them right now? What I've told most people for the last several years is try not to end up with an IRA at all. Um, end up with a Roth 401k. Uh, most companies offer that. It's better to pay the tax now than later. I think I gave you the example, you know, if you have a, a person in our age category and they got, you know, a million dollars in their 401k, they probably only put in, say, 500,000, but they have to pay tax on a million. So they got a tax break on 500,000 of it, and but they owe the government on a million. You're not in business with the government. So to me, to <laughs> defer that idea that later on I'm going to go into business with the government and pay them on the you know the, the harvest doesn't make any sense. I've had you know, and, and I get if you're in a higher tax bracket. I've had CPA say to a client, "Well, you're in the 38% tax bracket. You'd be better off to retire at some point in time and then convert it." I get that piece of it. Um, but my general thought is if you have the option for a Roth 401k, I would never touch a regular IRA. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially if, if uh, rates go up. We did, we did a little bit of simulation of that in, uh, with our financial planning software, and it's amazing how a relatively small increase in that tax rate 
makes that makes you wish you hadn't had put all your money there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then and then the other thing is there's that new rule under the Secure Act that says that you can't stretch your IRAs or your 401ks anymore. You have right. to actually do it faster. I think it's 10 years now for your heirs. So like say like if you don't spend it, you've got to do you've got to accelerate that out and your, and your heirs are going to pay a lot more taxes which leads to you know having to set up trusts and things like that to defer some of that. There's things you could do to kind of mitigate that, but it's just a, a lot of complexity. This is the thing that I've seen, and I, I think you agree with me, they keep changing the rules, right? So if you try to optimize on a single tax rule, you're gonna wind up changing how you do things so many times, you'll have a convoluted mess in your plan. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Think about like uh, education planning. You know, we've had so many different changes in how you could optimize education. Before the 529, we had all these, you know, education IRAs, and we had all these other things, the UTMA accounts, and, and all the rules kept changing. They kept closing those holes. What makes us think they're not going to close those holes again? Right. Um, so that's very good advice, in my opinion. I agree with you 100% you know, on that. This will be my one defense of the government. If you think about a 401k, uh, they're giving you a tax deduction each year. If you go to work when you're 25 and you retire when you're 65, you've got 65 or 45 years where, or 40 years where you didn't pay tax on that money. So to some extent, the government has an argument that, you know, let's take the money out, which is why they have the uh, mandatory age, which is now 72. And it probably explains a little bit of why they don't stretch it. Um, so I'll defend them a little bit, but in general, I think you're better off to pay the taxes now and be done with it. Have walking mm -hmm. money. And then the other thing is you have so many restrictions on what you can invest in. Right. Uh, and right. how you can invest in some of the most uh, attractive things you can't do, uh, attractive return potentials you can't do in an, in an IRA or a 401k. So um, let's talk a little bit about people who are retired. Um, Income is a tough thing. I mean, I guess if rates go up enough, then they can, you know, retirees can get more interest, to, uh, interest income, but their inflation rates going up too. So and it appears like interest rates aren't going up fast enough to really offset the increase in cost of living. So how are you helping retirees keep their income up to pace with the inflation rate? You can't do that. Um, it's just one of those periods of time. There's not an equal, I mean, how do you get a 9% return? That's what the, they told us was the inflation rate, which I think it's probably much more than that because they were willing to tell us it was 9%. So there's not a way to really keep up with that. And then problem number two is that most models for our industry are based on capital markets. So there used to be rule of thumb that you could take 5% of your investable assets and you wouldn't be infringing upon principal and you'd basically have that amount of principal when you retired if you invest it prudently. You can't use 5% anymore. It's probably down to 25 or 3%. So it's, it's a little bit of a problem. I think, though, most people that I've dealt with, it's not an issue that maybe they put 30% in cash and they're not getting the actual rate of return. Another way to look at it is the last 8 or 10 years of return actually forward paid us for the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. I, I know that doesn't solve the now, um, but it is a way to look at it. And then there are other things now like uh, fixed index annuities that are basically pensions 
that will give you a fixed payout that you can't run out of. That's the good part of it is you can't run out of it. But if you have heirs, there may not there may be less to give to heirs. But to solve an income need, you can do things like that. Mm. I like what you said about it being paid forward. I think the issue that a lot of people ran into is that we were getting paid forward. But instead of people banking some of that for future consumption, they spent it. They bought a bigger house. They bought a bigger house. Yeah. And so uh, and that's a, a good lesson for younger people too. those professionals who are, you know, getting set up. Don't, you know, be sure that you actually set up your situation where you're taking some off the top and you're not just spending all your return. Uh, yeah, you know, that whole 4% rule, 5% rule, you know, it's simulated out to be okay. Uh, back when the the real rates of return were around 5% on equities. Uh, but if you have inflation rate go up, the inflation rates go up, then that real return may be cramped down. And so that that doesn't work the, the math doesn't work anymore. So you're right, it's a it's a tougher situation um for a lot of people so and a lot of our you know clients are are wealthy so that's not an issue for them as far as they could just live off the cash but for a lot of just regular every day people who are saving and investing it's hard for them to make the retirement math work out right so if you're working with somebody who the retirement math just works out if everything goes right what what how are you thinking about allocating their portfolio like what's the overview of how you go about allocating their portfolio so um i'm treating those a little bit differently if someone brings money in and it's cash that's a more challenging because we're buying into sort of a tidal wave mm. but you don't want to have 100 percent cash if someone has investments that they're bringing over for me it's more of a kind of getting a little bit more liquid process. And what I've told the people that, that happened recently, a guy had a couple million dollars and we moved 30 or 40% of it out of equity. And I said, uh, if I'm wrong, if I'm right, well, if I'm wrong, then we've protected or you've taken gain, that forward, look forward payment sort of a thing, you've taken gain. If I'm right, you've taken gain and you've protected yourself against the market. But I think the question you were asking is, so how do I, how would I treat somebody um, new that has either cash or investments or both, aside from what I just told you? I think there's basically three and a half ways to protect yourself from inflation. One is gold and silver. Um, I think you could have, you can make a small argument that Bitcoin's in that category. Two is uh, real estate you know, things like uh, property or land or something like that. And then the third category is inflation protected stocks. So what are those? Those are places, and I just read one last night, and I already knew this one, but McDonald's. You know, McDonald's isn't a food company, number one. They're a royalty company, because all of those owners pay royalty, and they're the largest real estate holding, I think, in the world. But aside from that, they sell food on the side, and they can pass those smaller added costs into the food. So what I was reading last night is that I think McDonald's recently took out of one of their meals, like the free soda that went with it. That's mm -hmm. not going to deter people from going. They're saving a cost that's built into that soda, the carbonation, the all of that stuff uh, that goes with it. And they're able to raise the price a little bit because it's still a cheaper alternative for a lot of people. So the last category is what I focus on in general all the time. 
are these blue chip, com chip companies that are inflation protected that are turnkey. And there's a bunch of them out there. They're the great companies of the world. And you can build a lot of your equity part of your portfolio on that. Mm -hmm. And then the last half area, I said three and a half, would be cash. You know, when is in our business lifetime, have we told people you should have money in cash until now? And you'll hear the argument on CNBC, which I haven't watched since Elaine Garzarelli was on there. But <laughs> you'll hear their argument, which says it doesn't keep up inflation with inflation. And I say, yeah, but it doesn't keep up with the negative pace of the market either. So I think for a portion, you have to be willing to do that. And then one thing that I just started doing again, um, and I think we first talked about this in 2018, you know, most institutions in our industry are paying 0.1 or 0.2% on money market. So what I've been doing is I've been creating a two and a half month treasury ladder going five consecutive weeks, put one fifth of your money in each of those five starting in late September on the short end, you're going to get 1% on the last fifth week. You're going to get 1.5%. It's short enough that if there was a catastrophe and we needed to liquidate it, you're not going to lose any money because these bonds are amortizing and you're getting way better than money market. Yeah. It doesn't keep up with inflation, but you know, I can only do what I can do. Yeah, if for that protective part, you know that that it's getting to the point now where the treasuries make more sense. One of the things that's really interesting in, in, in our business is there's a lot of advisors that are not doing these types of things because they don't have the experience with that. Like all of their experience has been in this bull market and they also don't really understand individual security selection as well as you and I do because we teethed on that. Like we live our life with that. So there is a big advantage moving away from those pie charts and moving towards more selective investing. Um, and, and I think that that makes a big difference for people. And so I like what you said about diversifying across the, you know, commodity element as well as, you know, having some protection there. Although that hasn't been working re recently, in the long term, it tends to be a great diversifier. Uh, and then buying those blue chips. I, I, I like the concept of inflation protected stocks. Instead of inflation protected bonds, inflation protected stocks, you know, they can pass on uh, increase in prices. So you and I are doing similar types of strategies. Uh, but the way you, ver you the way you uh, uh, present it is very, very cool. I like it. So now I want to talk a little bit about how people can basically manage that risk element. So I know you said you've had you've taken some people out. One of the things that I, I like what you've told me in the past was that, you know, I would rather be half wrong, or no half right than be 100% wrong, right. So that's the concept that people need to understand, right? So if you have the stock that's gone up a lot, and there's a lot of people that are probably viewing this right now that have made money. And they're they're like, Oh, well, it's going to come back. But what if we do have that 50% decline plus, right? Wouldn't you rather be like half right than be 100% wrong in that scenario? Right. I think that's brilliant. So um, and that's really where we are right now. But we could again, we could be bottoming right now. So I don't want to sound too bearish. But we unfortunately work in the game of odds in our business. What kind of message would you like to send to individual investors right now? If, if you could think of anything, what would you kind of want to leave with people? Tops of markets are a process. And the bottom of markets are an event. And I haven't seen the event. So I don't think we're at the bottom. I'm not hoping for anything. I don't, I'm just the messenger. Make mm -hmm. sure I don't get shot. 
because I have good messages. But <laughs> and then even if we were, let's say let's say I'm half right. Even if we were at the bottom, there's still not an argument that we're going to get some sort of a snapback to what we would call normalcy. Let's say it's November of last year. You know, there there was a thing called the lost decade. You were here, and it was 2010 to 2000. I'm sorry, 2001, 2000 area to 2010. Mm -hmm. It took from that period of time, actually till 2011, for the market to get back to where it was in 2000. And I remember I had a client, and they had Microsoft and it had reached the all-time high. At that time, it was, I think, I don't know how many splits they've done. I want to say split adjusted, it would be 60 bucks today. And I said, we should probably take some of that off the table. And they did, um, but that was the high for Microsoft until 2011. So the idea that, you know, it's going to become optimistic, even if we are at the bottom, I'm not sure. You know, I think the bottom of that decade was 2004, 2005. Had you invested at that time, you'd look really, really smart. Um, but if you waited through the whole entire time, you would have needed companies that pay you to be a shareholder, that pay dividends, that are blue chip companies that protect against inflation in order for you to have made any money. So I, I, maybe that's not optimistic enough, but that's kind of how I've always approached it, or at least in the last 15 years. And that's how I might approach it if I were an investor looking for advice. Mm -hmm. Very good, very good. Excellent. Well, James, thanks a lot. Um, so if somebody wanted to see, learn more about you, how would people get in touch with you and where, where should we uh, send people? So I've got a website and my website is uh, raymondjames.com forward slash James L. Smith. And then you can find out a little bit more about me uh, there's contact information as well if you're interested, or there's just stuff that regular people might want to know, subject matter that would be pertinent or relevant or timely, and that's uh, probably the best way. Excellent. James, as always, good chatting with you, buddy. Hey, thanks for the invite. All right. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. For the latest episode of The Market Call Show, make sure to like, subscribe, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Go to marketcallshow.com for all our past episodes and sign up to get alerts for new episodes. If you enjoyed the content of this episode, please leave us a five-star review and comments. The information in this podcast is informational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific, individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. WealthNet Investments is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where WealthNet Investments and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure.